Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. Uh, we're calling this series over the next several months, Meet Jesus, uh, as we are uh, going to be looking at pictures of Jesus from the book of Luke and the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke. So we're kind of looking at snapshots, pictures from God's word of who Jesus is and what faith is, faith in Jesus. We're starting this week with Luke chapter 7, which is where Jesus meets a leader. Um, Jesus is going to meet a centurion, have some interaction with him. Uh, when you look at the two different stories, it looks like um, he's meeting the centurion, but he's actually meeting with the centurion through emissaries that the centurion has sent to him. Um, but we're going to see a great, uh, a great picture here of what it looks like to understand Jesus, follow Jesus, trust in Jesus. As we embark on this Meet Jesus series, um, there's really kind of two kinds of people that I'm aiming at. The first is someone who's never really been properly introduced to Jesus. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to have faith? Um, so for those of you that are asking questions that are not sure what that means, uh, we want to help you see through these episodes we see in God's word. Uh, the second person is for those of us that maybe know Jesus and follow Jesus, it's easy to forget who he is and to forget that he is ultimate and to fall from treasuring him above everything else in our life. So we believe that as we meet Jesus again, uh, we will become more and more in awe, more and more amazed at who Jesus is and desire to follow him and fall deeper in love with him all over again. So if you'll read with me, Luke chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. It's on page 863 in the Black Bibles. We've got some Bibles nearby if you want to follow along but don't have a Bible with you. Page 863, Luke chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Centurion is a, a commander who leads 60 to 100 soldiers. Centurion comes from the Latin word for 100. So they got their name from leading roughly 100 soldiers. So something like a, a, a sergeant or an officer. They didn't have that kind of division um, that would lead men. He's a leader of men for the Roman army, this occupying force that didn't believe generally in the God of Israel. But here we see a centurion who's doing things to help out the Jews, who has interest in the God of the Bible. We have an interesting meeting, a collision of two cultures here. Um, a leader being challenged. Uh, who's the ultimate authority in life? Let me pray for us, and I'll ask God to, to help us to wrestle with this this morning. God, we, we need your help today. We pray that you would teach us. Um, in many ways, as I studied this week, it seemed like a, a really simple story, Lord, but we also recognize that there's something profound here. 
but this is really deep and it, it touches all of us. We all have some level of leadership, some level of influence in our life. And God, we need to recognize who the true authority in this world is. And so we ask for your help. We pray that your word would be met by your spirit and that you would help us to see you, to recognize how good you are, to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I got the idea for the series through the book of Luke and Acts, meeting Jesus, getting a picture of what the gospel really is. I got the idea from a professor of mine that wrote a book called Learning Evangelism from Jesus. Um, And in the book, he shares many different episodes from many of the other gospels as well as the gospel of Luke. Uh, And as he talks about this story in specific in particularity, he compares the centurion, he compares the centurion to Oscar Schindler. Any of you ever seen the movie Schindler's List? Schindler's List came out several years ago. It was a, it was a tough movie to watch because it was a, it was a movie about the, the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust. Oscar Schindler was actually a German spy. Um, he was actually a leader who used his influence to make himself rich. Um, he was a spy for the Germans so that he could get higher uh, respect from the German government. And then once the spying portion was over, he used his influence to get a factory. And this was all so that he could grow his own power, wealth, and influence. But what happened is, is Oscar Schindler began to accidentally care for other human beings. Oscar Schindler and his desire to use his leadership influence to just make himself more powerful and more rich began to care for other people. He began to recognize that Jews were made in the image of God. And so the story follows Oscar Schindler using his leadership influence then not just to make himself rich, but he begins spending his own money to save Jews in his factory. And so it's this great story of this shift in how you use your leadership influence. And Jerem Bars, my professor that wrote this book, Learning Evangelism from Jesus, says there's some, some similarities there, right? Because um, Schindler was considered an outsider by the Jews of his day, and this centurion was certainly considered an outsider by the Jews of his day. Gentiles, dogs, they would call them sometimes. The wrong kind of person. As we saw last week, even in the Old Testament, God cared about non-Jews. Even in the Old Testament, God was continually folding in the nations into the people of God. When Jesus shows up on the scene, especially in the book of Luke, Jesus points this out. Jesus shows that God has always cared about all people, all kinds of people, every color, every race, every tribe. And this story about the centurion is just another story that shows us that as well. But it shows us particularly what it looks like to be a leader that recognizes, you know what, there's another leader that's more important than me. So I know about half of you in the room are thinking, oh, this is about leaders, and I'm not really a leader, so it doesn't pertain to me. Well, I would argue that we're all leaders, right? You might lead thousands, or you might just lead yourself and one other person. You might just lead your pet, right? That might be your perspective. But we're all leaders. Really, we all have influence might be a better way to say it. And so when we see Jesus meeting a leader, a leader that has great responsibility, I just want you to be asking the question, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? Um, The first thing that I think is really important for us to, to latch on to here when Jesus meets this leader is the concept of neediness. If you're a leader, if you have some sense at all that you know 
what you're doing and where you're going and you're leading others in that way, it can be difficult to pause and to admit your own neediness. So we have this fantastic example of this with the Roman centurion. Rome, in contrast to previous, uh, previous empires, was very much about power, right? The, the Greek empire was about power, but it was also about beauty. Rome kind of just chucked the whole beauty idea. They were just about power. They were just all about power and getting things done, being the winning army. That's what the centurion was trained in. Yet he was able to recognize his neediness. So that's my first question for you. Do you recognize your own neediness before God? Look at verses 1 through 3. I'll just read them again. 1 through 3 says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So this is a place where he basically was like a a headquarters of his ministry. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So the centurion's servant, slave, was highly valued by the centurion. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Now I I just want to recognize what might seem obvious from the story here, but he had someone that was really important to him And the person that was really important to him, it says, was at the point of death. Parallel passage in uh, Matthew 8, I think, says he was paralyzed. Gives us a little more details of some of these other parts of the story. But basically, the way I would rephrase it is someone he loved, someone that was very dear to him, was hurting. That hit him in the heart, right? Those of you that have lost a child or lost a loved one, you know what that's like. Or just a friend. You've had maybe a friend that you didn't lose to death, but they were sick and struggling, and you struggled because someone you loved was struggling, and that's the picture we see here. It it often takes us coming to a a rock-bottom place or a place of great pain before we can hear God or see God or recognize our own need for God. Neediness is always a part of our journey to God. You don't get to God apart from neediness. C.S. Lewis said one time that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pain. We can always hear God more clearly when we are feeling needy, when we're feeling like we can't do it. I grabbed a picture here of a child tying their shoes because uh, one of the things that I remember wrestling with with my own kids is that back and forth tug of your child wanting to train them to do things on their own, but also sometimes they just can't do it, and you got to do it for them, right? There's that time when your kid wants you to tie their shoes and you say, no, you can do it. Go tie your shoes. But there's also that time when your kid can't tie their shoes and they're saying, no, I can do it, right? Have you ever, has that ever happened to you? They're screaming at you, but they can't do it. You're like, no, you cannot do it. No, I can do it. And they're just screaming. And that's, that's how we relate to God a lot, right? We prefer to live our daily life screaming at God, no, I can do it. I'm just fine. I know what I'm doing. And We have to come to a point of neediness. We have to come to a point of recognizing, no, I can't do it. The way I would say it's this way, do you love people perfectly all the time? Do you always do what's right? Do you always have pure motives? Okay, well then, spiritually speaking, you cannot tie your shoes. You cannot do it. You're needy before a holy God. Charles Spurgeon has this great quote. He says, we pray best when we are fallen on our face in painful helplessness. We pray 
best when we are fallen on our face in painful helplessness. I would say the same thing about worship. I worship best when I'm already crying. I, I delight in God the best when I'm hurting. I pray best when I'm needy, when I have this clarity of who I am and who God is. So my question for you is, have you ever hit that place of rock bottom? Have you ever hit that place of recognizing your own need before God? Or, or do you kind of operate on a daily basis thinking, no, I'm just, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can do it. I don't, I don't need any help. I'm doing all right. There's a Christian tradition. It's called confession and assurance. And that's a part of our worship service where we say, as a people, we're messed up. We need God's forgiveness and grace. Pretty much every Christian tradition does that to some degree. We do it in different ways. We do, you know, use different words, do different kind of traditional um, boundaries to how that's done, but that's kind of a core of Christianity. And it's often confused in what turns a group of so-called Christians into a group of kind of legalistic Pharisees is missing that. We lose the ability to be the people of God that God calls us to be when we don't confess our neediness before God and before each other. When we come in with the like, I'm fine, everything's okay, I had a perfect week, we never fight, we never cuss, we never fail, we're, we're all put together. And when we have that kind of fakeness, it makes it really impossible for us to relate to other people. And it causes great confusion about what the gospel actually is for outsiders that don't understand the gospel. We just perpetuate the myth and the culture that Christians are people that think they're better than other people. When actually Christians, more profoundly than other people, should recognize, I am not better than other people. I am broken. I am needy. So this is the beginning of the journey of the centurion, this leader recognizing his need for another leader, recognizing his need for supernatural leadership. The next thing that we see in this journey is the question of how are you going to approach God then? How are you going to relate to God then? Is it going to be by merit or by humility? And we see this unfold in verses 4 through 7. Look at verses 4 through 7. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Okay? So the Jewish leaders go to Jesus and they say, you need to help this guy because he's worthy. He has merit. He has value. They say, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. So this pagan built them their house of worship, which is an interesting oxymoron there. We don't know if he did it, right, like Oscar Schindler. He just did it to get ahead, you know. He just did it to bribe people, to get some money, to make himself more rich, and, you know, be in good with the people of the area. We're not sure of all those background details. We know generally... Romans didn't believe in the God of Abraham. We also know, though, there is this category of people that throughout the book of Acts are called God-fearers. And these are pagans that would kind of hang around the periphery of the synagogues and say, there's something to this God of the Hebrews. So they're called God-fearers. They hadn't gone the whole nine yards, gotten circumcised, gone through all the rituals to become Jews. And we don't always understand, again, why. Maybe, you know, maybe they couldn't because of their job or whatever the circumstances, but they were hanging around. They wanted to know more about the God of the Hebrews. And these were the people that were often most open to the gospel in the book of Acts. So we're not sure what category he is, right? Was he a, a, a faker that just kind of wanted to have power and influence, or, or did he really love the God of the Hebrews? You know, he seems to be a righteous person. 
But either way, we see throughout the New Testament that that's not how you approach God. You don't approach God based on merit. But that's what his Jewish friends were doing. His Jewish friends were saying, you've got to help him out, Jesus, because he has merit, because he has value. It says in verse 5, he loves our nation. He's the one who built us our synagogue. Synagogue just means gathering place. It was their, it was their building where they taught the word and sang their psalms together and worshiped God. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Stop there halfway through verse 7. So he sent more that said, no, 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 don't even come to the house. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. So the first mode of relating we have here is he's worthy. He's worthy. He did good things. He's worthy. And so my question for you, is that how you relate to God? God, I'm, I'm worthy. God, I've been faithful. God, I've been going to church. God, I've been doing these nice things. God, I faithfully served my children in this way. Or God, I'm, I'm the most honest person in my business. Or God, I've, I've faithfully done this. Or God, I've faithfully done that. I'm, I'm worthy. Why don't you bless me? That's how the Jews wanted God to bless the centurion. But the centurion, again, we see the development of true faith here. The centurion says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to have you anywhere near me. So my question for you is, do you see yourself as worthy? Or do you see yourself as not worthy? There's really two paths here to relate to God, to relate to Jesus. Jesus, I'm worthy. You owe me. Or... Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm just calling on your mercy. Which way do you, do you relate to God? I have a picture here of a report card. Um, how many ever got a report card when you were kids? I know some of you younger people, they don't do report cards anymore. That's old-fashioned, right? You got trophies for everything. But back in the day, <laughs> back in the day, we'd get A, B, C, D, Fs, right? You know, you could actually be told you failed at something. I know they don't say that anymore, so this is a confusing illustration for a, a lot of you under 25. But back in the day, you could be told that you failed. And you could have a lot of anxiety about whether you were successful or whether you were a failure. And that way that we deal in our everyday life can carry over into how we relate to God. How do you relate to God? Do you relate to God with your resume or with your report card? Do you, do you bring your score to God and say, God, you owe me? Or do you recognize you got an F, right? I actually made pretty good grades growing up. Uh, don't, didn't deserve to. I wasn't that great of a student. But I made pretty good grades. Fooled my parents into thinking I was doing well in school. Made pretty good grades. And there's the danger of thinking that I deserved those grades, right? In our spirituality, we're always, I think, relating to God and either I deserve this or I don't deserve this. I have great despair. God will never love me. In the gospel, we have to have this clarity about we absolutely don't deserve God's favor, but he gives it to us anyway because he's gracious, because that's the way God operates. Not because of us, because of him. It's objective. It's him. It's not us. And that's the only way you can truly relate to God, is if you understand this. The only way to really pray, Spurgeon was saying, is recognizing your neediness. 
you don't recognize your neediness, you, you probably aren't going to pray. You're probably not going to talk to God. Or you're going to talk to God thinking the way you're talking to God is establishing your worthiness, and it's going to be all messed up. We, we come to God saying, God, I'm not worthy, but I know you're gracious, so help me. Will you help me? I'm hurting. I'm needy. I can't do this on my own. I'm a great leader. I can lead men, but I can't lead everything. I can win in this area, but I can't win in the most important areas of life. God, I need your help. That's where an honest relationship with God starts is from moving from merit to humility. The last thing I want us to see is his clarity. Jesus praises his faith as exemplary faith. So what's interesting about this is we would assume that the centurion um, could not have passed a doctrinal exam, right? Uh, any of you ever grew up in church, you know, you would have these drills sometimes in Sunday school where you try to find the books of the Bible, right? Or sometimes in our Sunday school program, we'll have kids memorize verses, right? There's, there's things we do to use competition to help kids get ahead, to help them learn more scripture. Well, I'm guessing he would have failed those competitions. I'm guessing he didn't really know that much of the details about who Jesus really was, right? Jesus hadn't even revealed it all yet. And yet Jesus is saying, this guy's got the kind of faith I want you to have. He's telling us, pay attention to this guy's faith. He doesn't necessarily know a lot of facts, right? He can't articulate the Trinity. We know that for sure because the whole thing hadn't been revealed yet, right? Like we haven't gotten that far in time yet. But he's saying, Look at this guy. Look at his faith. This is great faith. But let me read what it says. So picking up in second half of verse 7. So he just said, I'm not worthy to have you come. Uh, verse 7, therefore I don't presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Now this is, okay, this is just a little side thing. We're doing okay on time. Um, liberal scholars question this passage because they say normally Jesus would like touch people and be with them when he would heal them. So they question this as kind of a strange story because of uh, the, the like telepathic healing, you know, like that Jesus can heal him from a distance. So I just want to point out how convoluted and weird liberal scholars get. When you, when you read commentaries, it's one of the painful things I have to do to study the Bible is I have to read a lot of stuff by people that kind of halfway believe the Bible but then have crazy ideas about it as well. And I'm reading these things and I'm like... <laughs> So Jesus could heal someone close, but he can't heal someone far, right? Like both seem kind of supernatural to me. But um, here we have this story where he's saying, just say the word. The centurion saying, I have such great faith in you, I believe you can heal without spitting in the mud and rubbing it on my servant, right? Or without touching him or without getting with even within the house of him. I believe you can just heal him because your authority is that great. Because your authority is so, so great. So he says, again, just, just say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion, the, the leader, is saying, I'm a leader, and my followers have to obey me. And I'm trusting that you have the same kind of leadership. And that if you say the word, the spirits will obey. The sickness will leave that you are sovereign, that you are king, that you have real authority. Centurion saying, I have a kind of authority, but, but you have real authority. And Jesus says this, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. 
and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. The word marvel is interesting because uh, the word marvel is only used with Jesus twice. I think Mark is the other place it's used, never ever used again in, in Luke of Jesus marveling at something. So basically like another translation would be like he was amazed. Um, Jesus' mind was blown, right? It, that doesn't happen very often. Jesus was just, wow, this is incredible faith. Jesus marveled. He was amazed. His mind was blown. He was, he was amazed and marveling at the great faith that he had. Very, very unusual thing to say about Jesus. And so Luke is saying, hey, pay attention. Pay attention to this. This is really important. Jesus is saying that this leader had really great faith. And again, it's not, it's not this advanced, um, he could explain a bunch of doctrine. The centurion had memorized every book of the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, I trust you. I trust you. You can do it. Jesus, you can do it. I trust you. I trust you. I believe in you. I had clarity about who Jesus was. My question for us is, do we have that same kind of clarity? Do we see with clarity how great Jesus is? Or are we focused on ourselves? Again, you see this movement of faith, and you see knowledge in our faith with what we know of our own little world, but moving out from there and making it about Jesus in our faith with what we know of our own little world, but moving out from there and making it about Jesus. So it's not about him, it's about Jesus. I have some concept of authority, and I see you as this, as this real authority, as this ultimate authority, and I trust you. And so Jesus is saying, pay attention. This guy's got clarity. This guy's got real faith. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. He says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Boom. Telepathic healing, as the liberal scholars like to say. He just healed him. He said, boom, he's well. Because Jesus really did have that kind of authority. And the centurion saw that he had that kind of authority and trusted him and asked him to exercise that authority. Jesus marvels and says, I've never seen this kind of faith in Israel. And Jesus most likely is talking to a crowd because as we read the Gospels, there's always like a crowd of people hanging around with Jesus and he's always teaching people along the way, right? So there's this crowd of predominantly Jewish people following and Jesus had this interaction with a pagan non-Jew and he's saying, this is the best faith I've ever seen. All the rest of you, you stink. But he has got real faith. Jesus is teaching them a lesson here saying, pay attention to this faith. He has clarity. The Matthew 8 version of this story, you know, there's some variations. Every gospel kind of gives you different lenses. And as you look through it, it's interesting. He says, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of pagans entering the kingdom of heaven, and there's going to be a lot of Jews on the outside. There's going to be a lot of outsiders that become insiders by faith, and there's going to be a lot of insiders that become outsiders by their lack of faith. The way John the Baptist had said it is, Abraham can raise up, uh, not Abraham, God can raise up sons of Abraham. In other words, God can raise up faithful ones from stones if he wants to. Your, your ethnic descent doesn't matter. The family you're born into doesn't matter. What matters is your faith. So you can be born into a great family that loves God and you can reject God and not trust him and that makes you an outsider. Or you can be born into a terrible family that hates God, and Jesus is saying, you can, you can trust me, and you can be on, on the inside. 
in Matthew 21, he says, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. So there's this theme again and again in the Gospels of outsiders becoming insiders and insiders becoming outsiders. And our clarity about faith is the issue. So it's a picture of a bridge. Uh, Repeatedly throughout um, Scripture, we have this idea of Jesus being the mediator between God and man, right? Jesus is the one that kind of picks up all these Old Testament uh, pictures and visuals of our need to approach God through sacrifices. That's the doorway, right? Well, Jesus is the sacrifice. We have this picture that uh, Jacob has this uh, vision of a stairway to heaven. Well, Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm the stairway to heaven. So again and again, we have this bridge, door, pathway, metaphor. Jesus says, I'm the way, road, the truth, and the life. So it's used again and again, so much so that a lot of modern Christians will even use that as an illustration for shorthand for the gospel, right? Saying, well, Man's over here, God's over here, sin is in between, we need a bridge to make it across. And a lot of times we, we like to uh, look down on these oversimplified summaries of the gospel because they're kind of oversimplified, but, but really this is a very biblical metaphor. Jesus repeatedly is saying, he's the door, he's the way, he's the road, he's the path, he's the ladder, he's the bridge. And I have a picture here, it's hard to see because I'm just realizing the contrast isn't good, but just trust me. This is not the kind of bridge you would want to walk across, right? This is a rickety bridge, an old, beat-up bridge. It's a classic uh, thing you see in movies, right? They're being chased by bad guys, and they come upon the bridge that nobody wants to cross, right? And then they have to go across the bridge. So there's this metaphor that Jesus is the true bridge. He's, He's the way for us to get to God. And our faith is never in ourselves. Our faith is in Jesus. So clarity about who Jesus is is what faith is. Faith is seeing Jesus. Faith is never faith in your own faith. That would be another way to say it. And so that's my question for you today. Do do you have faith in your own faith? Do do you you think, well, I feel this way or I think this way or I know these things, so therefore I have faith? Well, Well, that's not what faith is. I'm not saying if you automatically question those things, you're going to hell, sorry. No, what I'm saying is faith is seeing Jesus. Faith is seeing Jesus, saying he's the answer, having clarity about Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith is never about you. Faith is always about the object of our faith, which is, which is Jesus. So there's this clarity that the centurion has that we're supposed to imitate, that we're supposed to be like that, we're supposed to see that, we're supposed to value that. So your, your merit, your worthiness is not the bridge. Your ability to take care of yourself is not the bridge, right? We see that with centurion. He's coming to God in neediness. He's not approaching God by his value or merit or worth, but he's approaching Jesus through uh, humility, unworthiness, neediness. So your faith itself is not the bridge. Your merit is not the bridge. Your doctrine about Jesus is not the bridge. Jesus himself is the bridge. And so we all need to come to that point of clarity about Jesus. We're following Jesus. We're not following ideas. We're not following a list of regulations about Jesus. We're following Jesus. So the way I would say it is this. A lot of you wrestle with a lot of the peripheral issues about 
the faith, you have questions about Scripture, you have questions about um, who God is and why does He allow bad things to happen in the world, I, I would just challenge you, plead with you to deal with Jesus, to deal with Jesus. And then let Jesus put his arm around you and say, we'll work on this other stuff, right? So, so you might be wrestling with, I can't, I can't have faith, I can't walk with God because of this sin in my life, and it is too deep, and it is too messy, and it is too uh, awful. I'd say, well, don't look at you. Look at Jesus. And allow Jesus to walk with you and put his arm around you and say, okay, we'll work on this together. You might have intellectual questions. You may have real problems about the faith as you look at the Scriptures. I don't understand this. Okay, just look at Jesus. Begin the relationship with Jesus, and then he'll help you work out those questions. He'll walk with you through those other details. Stop thinking about yourself, but have clarity about Jesus. I believe that's the example that we have here of the centurion. I started off with the story about Oscar Schindler. He was a leader that used his influence first to become rich, selfishly to gain more influence for himself, and then something happened and he began to actually care for other people. He ended up giving away everything he had. Started out, his main goal in life was to be rich. Ended up, his goal became to save these people, and he gave up his riches to do it. The centurion also, similarly, he's a good example of someone who had influence and power, but he used it for the sake of others. But I want you to not miss Jesus as we think about these other examples. Jesus had the greatest influence that exists in the universe. Philippians tells us that he was equal with God, but he didn't consider his equality with God something to be greedily hung on to, grasped. But he was willing to humble himself. He was willing to give up everything for us. That's the picture I want to leave us with, this Jesus who gave everything up for us, to love us, to change us. That's who we want to follow. That's who we want to be sure about. That's who we want to have clarity about. Let me pray for us, and we'll respond in communion and in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you invite us into relationship with you through Jesus, and we pray that you would continue to grow us in our faith. Not so that we could say, hey, look look at my faith, look at what I've done, but that we would get a clearer and clearer picture of you. So God, we would, we would pray that you would rip the roof off of the building, so to speak, so that we could be lowered down into the presence of Jesus. That we would have more time with you, we would get a clearer picture of you, we would grow closer to you, we would grow more and more in love with you. God, help us as a people to be about you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.